So as we do that, this, this building, this place, this steeple is not the church. It's actually these people that are the church, right? And if we haven't learned that over the last uh, couple of months, what, what have we learned, right? We've, we've certainly learned that the people are the church. And that's why this is such a big day for us is that we get to be back together as the church of Jesus Christ. So where did this thing all start? The, the church, where did it all begin? Well, we're in the book of Acts and we are looking at just that. So find your place, if you will, with me in the book of Acts. We're in chapter two of the book of Acts. As you're finding your place there, um, what we're going to see is that the church of Jesus is born and built on the message of the gospel. The church of Jesus Christ is born and built on this message. That this Jesus is the hope of salvation for guilty men. This Jesus. We're going to talk about that. So the title of the message today is this Jesus. What Jesus? Well, this Jesus. And that's what Peter is going to preach this powerful message in Acts chapter 2. That's exactly where we'll spend our time today. The reason I've titled this message, This Jesus, is because that two-word phrase is repeated three times in our text. And all around it, we have these clues as to who Christ is and why we should trust in Him. This Jesus, who is He and why should we trust in Him? A little bit of backup, uh, a little bit of uh, backstory to make sure we're all caught up on what's going on. So Jesus has died on the cross. He has resurrected from the dead. He spent 40 days with his disciples, um, teaching them all things about the kingdom. Then he gives them a, a promise. He says, not many days from now, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he said, when the Spirit comes on you, uh, he's going to come on you with power. And you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So this huge promise. And he tells them, I want you to go and wait in Jerusalem. So the, the disciples of Jesus go wait in the upper room. And while they wait, they pray. Um, Peter uh, quotes some scripture and, and encourages the people to replace Judas. He encourages them and tells them, hey, the whole thing with Judas, um, that was part of God's plan. He quotes the scriptures and says, God has been planning this whole thing. And Judas was a part of the plan. But now we've got to replace Judas. And so they do that. They replace Judas with Matthias. And then in chapter 2, we get to uh, the Holy Spirit of God comes on. So God makes that promise. I'm going to send the Spirit. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 2. The people of God, about 120, are gathered together. They're praying. They're worshiping. And the Spirit of God falls on them in a powerful way. So as that happens, they begin to worship, declaring the, the mighty works of God in different languages, in many languages they didn't know. The crowd that's gathered in Jerusalem, they've, they've come to celebrate the feast of Passover, or not Passover, Pentecost. They've come to celebrate a feast and they've come from all over the known world, from lots of different nationalities and they speak all different languages. The Spirit of God came on the people of God. So that they could proclaim the mighty works of God. That is the same thing that happens today. Is the Spirit of God comes on His people so that we can declare His mighty works. So as this crowd is gathered, 
After they've, they've been worshiping, the crowd is gathered. Many of them respond in two different ways. They either respond with amazement at this Jesus, or they respond, some of them, by mocking him. And some of them say, oh, this, this crowd, they're just drunk. They've had too much wine. They're, they're drunk. So the, the very first sermon of the church, Peter's going to preach. And as he preaches that sermon, it starts in a very different way. You know, you probably don't hear most sermons begin this way. Hey, we're not drunk, right? But that's the way that's the way Peter begins this sermon in Acts 2. Guess we're not drunk. This is just the Holy Spirit. That's the way this sermon begins and thus begins the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. The church is born when the Holy Spirit comes on the people of God and they preach the truth of God. So as that happens, what we're going to see through the book of Acts is at least three things. The church began with, you just write these down if you're taking notes, the church began with ordinary people. These are not, you know, scholars who studied uh, the scriptures. They're fishermen and tax collectors and just regular old guys. It began with ordinary people. As we look through the book of Acts, we see that they were uneducated, yet they'd been with Jesus. That's what made it special. They were ordinary people with extraordinary power. The power that was given to them was given to them through the Holy Spirit. Ordinary people with extraordinary power. And this is the third thing that they, the multiplication of Jesus people. And that's what we're going to see is unfolding here is that this little group is meant to multiply. That's the reason God's given his Holy Spirit is to empower ordinary people to multiply Jesus people. That's why we're gathered, right? We gather in here to get in the word of God, to be encouraged in the truth of God, to pray for the spirit of God to fill us and take us and use us to multiply more Jesus people in the world. That's our mission. That's what we're meant to do in this life. So this is the church at its beginnings. Okay, one thing that we do um, is we stand in honor of God's word. I know you've just gotten comfortable in those seats, but don't get comfortable, right? Stand up with me, if you will, in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read the entirety of Peter's sermon. All of his sermon from verse 14 to verse 41. Let's just be encouraged through the reading of the scripture this morning. But Peter, standing with the eleven, he lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be 
saved. That's good news, right? Peter continues, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would uh, set one of his descendants on his throne... David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing now. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for those all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about three thousand souls. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our king. We worship you today. We thank you for this word that points our hearts to you. So I pray that you make yourself known, make yourself glorious in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. A few years ago, I had the honor of preaching a funeral for a true man of God. Um, Mr. Pat Steed was his name. And um, this man... I. I've never known a guy this, this old that had such a love for the Word of God. He wasn't uh, stuck in an old kind of crusty faith. He was very 
alive in his faith and alive in the word. And he loved his Bible and he loved the Lord. And uh, he just amazed me. Well, I, I had the honor of preaching his funeral when he passed and was intimidated by that, but was honored to be able to do that. And his wife, Miss Betty, handed me his Bible and she said, maybe you can find some things in here that would help you. Um, and so I had already written a good bit of what I thought was going to be the message for his funeral service. And then as I flipped through his Bible, every page was marked up and highlighted and notes written in the margins. And I mean, it was it was one of the most worn out Bibles I've ever seen. And I just kept coming through, just looking at all the things and all the ways this guy had marveled at Jesus Christ. And then I found him. I got to the very back, you know, where they've got a couple of extra pages that have no writing. And on one of those back pages, he had written a sermon. And it was a sermon for his own funeral. And as I read the introduction to his funeral sermon, he talked about how... um, He had raised his children and his grandchildren and even now his great grandchildren uh, in a way to chase the things of the world. You see, he didn't come to faith in Christ until he was in his mid-40s and uh, all of his kids had moved on and moved out and had uh, begun to live and pursue their careers. And he had taught them for those 40 years that life is in all the stuff you can get and joy is in all the accolades you can have and and true pleasure is in all the, all the money you can gather and all the things. And that's, that's where satisfaction is in life. And it wasn't until he was middle age that he discovered those things are not true. They're all empty. The only satisfaction in life is in Jesus. He found the word of God and he began to dig in scripture. When he wrote this sermon and in the introduction, he said to his children, he said, I have wanted to gather you and tell you what changed my life. But you wouldn't come. You're too busy chasing the things the world cannot give you. Listen to that. I wanted to tell you what changed my life, but you wouldn't come. Then he says, but now I know you're here. You've come to honor my death. So hear my words. I tell you, the message I had written, I just scrapped it. I said, I've got to preach this guy's sermon. This is his sermon to his kids. I've got to preach his sermon. So I just preached it word for word. And I thought to myself as a father, I thought, what would I want to say to my kids? And I just tried to preach with eye contact, looking at his children, his grandchildren, to tell them from the heart of a father, you've got to know this Jesus. It's probably one of the most um, passionate sermons I've ever preached. Normally I preach a, a funeral for the family that remains, but that one I preached for the man who died. And today I get the joy of preaching another man's sermon. And I don't want to um, add or take away too much. I just want to get to the meat of what Peter wants us to know. A crowd has gathered And there's a sense of urgency that wells up in his soul. The Holy Spirit is compelling him to stand and call attention to his message. He begins his sermon by standing to a position of authority and saying to that crowd, you need to listen up. Hear my words. I've got something important to tell you. And he goes on to say, we're not drunk. This is what the Holy Spirit of God promised to do. 
This is what God promised to do through his prophet Joel, through his prophet David. What you're seeing is what God promised to do. And here's the essence of his message. This Jesus is the hope of salvation for guilty men. That's the essence of the whole sermon. This Jesus is the hope of salvation for guilty men. Now he's going to build that premise. And so that's where we're going to spend our time today. The first thing I want us to see in this message is that this Jesus is glorious. This Jesus is glorious. If you look at the three times that Peter uses that expression, this Jesus, in verse 23, verse 32, and verse 36, what he's doing is he's saying, Jesus is an unavoidable, glorious Savior. Everything, everything in your life is pointing you to Christ and everything depends on what you do with him. He's glorious. When I say the word glorious, we don't use that word much. So let me just flesh it out. What I mean is he's beautiful. I'll tell you about that. And he is significant. He's beautiful and he's significant. Meaning, everything hinges on Jesus. Everything. What do I mean by beautiful? Here's what I want you to see. There's some beauty in this text. Lots of paradox. Lots of things happening that are divine and human. Divine things happening and human things happening. When I say Jesus is glorious, meaning beautiful and significant, here's what I mean. The Bible says he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Listen to that. Like God orchestrated Jesus' death. That's pretty radical, isn't it? And yet at the same time, that's the divine side of things, the human side. It says he was delivered up according to God's plan. But humanly speaking, he was crucified by lawless men. This is a beautiful thing that God has orchestrated to happen. The Bible says that he was raised up. God raised him up and exalted him to sit at the right hand of God. And yet humanly, he is rejected by men. In the divine way, the Lord said, the Bible says that he was made to be both Lord and Christ. And yet humanly, we crucified this king. This is the beautiful aspect of a glorious Jesus in the, in the prophecy of Joel. What we see is that, um, well, several things, but I'll just flesh it out quickly. We see that we have entered into the last days, right? This is what's unfolding here. The spirit of God coming is the last days and the spirit is going to come on all flesh. So it's no longer just one prophet who can speak the truth. You know, in the book of Numbers, Moses actually was weary from serving in that role of prophet. And he actually said in Numbers 11, he said, I, I wish that the spirit of God would come on all people and that all people could speak like this on behalf of God. What a prophecy, because that's what's happening right here. The spirit of God is coming on all believers. And now all the believers in the room are equipped to prophesy. And the point of Joel's prophecy is to say that it's. It doesn't matter if you're male, female, a slave. 
That doesn't matter. If you believe in Christ, the Spirit of God is given to you, and you're given the mission of making Him glorious. Prophesying about Him. The beautiful thing about Joel's prophecy is the ending there where Peter says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus is glorious. The Bible says in verse 36, I want to park here for just a moment. This is the climax of Peter's sermon. And he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and Christ, whom you crucified. What does that mean? Well, the word Lord means king, master, boss. He's the king. That's, that's what David is prophesying about. King David is talking about the, uh, one who's coming after him, who's going to sit on his throne forever. And he's prophesying that this is Jesus. He's the king who's sitting on the eternal throne. He's a better king than David. He's the Lord. And then Christ, that's what Joel is prophesying about. He's the one who has come to save. He's the rescuer, the redeemer. And this is where the beauty of Christ mingles, is that he is saved. God is sending him to die to save us from our sin. And yet it's our sin that sends him to the cross. It's this beautiful, miraculous thing that God is a tapestry. God is weaving. This Jesus is glorious. Secondly, every person is guilty. Every person is guilty. I imagine um, when we read Peter's sermon, especially in verse 23, Where he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. You crucified him and killed him. Peter makes that point very clear. And so I want to make that point very clear as well. Again, I'm preaching another man's sermon. So let me say it this way. You killed Jesus. Now imagine as you hear those words, there's a little bit of pushback maybe in your heart. Like, wait a minute, this guy died 2,000 years ago. How, how could I be responsible for his death? Let me frame it up the way he does. The men, remember, who are gathered there that day, about two months have passed Since Jesus' death, many of them have come from faraway lands, right? So many of them probably were not there when Jesus was killed to begin with. But Peter has no problem looking at this massive crowd from all over the world and telling every one of them, you killed Jesus. He doesn't mean you drove the nails into his hands. What he means to say is that in rejecting Christ, in rejecting Jesus as Lord and Christ, That is killing this Savior. Rejecting Him is, does make us guilty. So that question, I don't know how it sits on you. Did you kill Jesus? 
before that crowd ever cried out, crucify him. They had shouted blasphemy at the way that he had lived. The Bible says that God attested. He was a man attested to you by God. Well, how did God attest to Jesus Christ? How did God endorse Jesus as Lord and Christ? And I want to tell you in, in four ways. God attested to Jesus through his life. The Bible says through his miracles and works, mighty wonders, the signs and wonders and miracles. So think for a moment in, in his life, in Jesus's life. Um, he. He loved the outcasts. He welcomed the sinner. He touched the lepers. But through some of his miracles and signs and wonders, this is the way that God is attesting this Jesus is the Son of God. He's the one I've sent to rescue you. He's your King. Think think for a moment, if you will, about um, the day Jesus was teaching and all of a sudden the roof is ripped open and the paralyzed man is lowered down right in front of him. You remember that story? And everybody in the room expects Jesus to uh, maybe kneel down and, and say, you know what? You're well. Get up. Rise up and walk. But he doesn't say that first, does he? He looks at this paralyzed man and he says, your sins are forgiven. Well, everybody in the room is shocked, especially the religious leaders. And you know what they shout? Blasphemy. No one can forgive sin except God, right? Little did they know that's the point of the miracle is that they're looking at God in the face of Jesus Christ. That was the point and that was the point of all his signs and wonders is to say, I am the one that God has endorsed to you. I am the one I'm attested to you by God through my life. So it's his life and then it's his death. We've talked about this for a moment about The incredible paradox of the death of Jesus. But here it is again. Um, God planned it. God planned his own son's death. Isaiah 53 talks about it so clearly that he it pleased God to crush his own son. It pleased God. Psalm 22. Jesus quotes it from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All through the Old Testament, Jesus actually says it himself. He says the son of man must be um, persecuted and and killed and buried and will raise again on the third day. Jesus told about his own death. He wasn't shocked by it. And when we look at the death of our Savior, we know it wasn't a surprise to God. God planned it, but men performed it. God allowed it, but men accomplished it. God Ordained it, and yet men ordered it. This is the crazy paradox that God is um, endorsing His own Son through His death, and that endorsement is immediately rejected and actually caused by those He came to save. So it's through His life, it's through His death, it's through His resurrection. Obviously, by raising from the dead. By raising from the dead, Jesus proclaims himself as Lord and Christ. And then lastly, his exaltation. His exaltation, what we mean there is that Jesus is now king over all, including his enemies. The Bible actually says that um, his enemies will be nothing more than a footstool for him. So he's exalted to the place of king. So here's the question again. 
Did you kill Jesus? And the point we're making, the point Peter is making is, do you reject what God has endorsed? Are you rejecting the one that God has sent? These men that Peter's preaching to are devout religious Jews. They've, they've come, they've gathered to in Jerusalem to do their religious duty. Like to do all the things that they think are going to please God. And when they get to Jerusalem, they hear this message that you've come to please God, but lo and behold, you actually killed his son. And the point Peter wants to set on them and to rest on them is that this glorious Jesus, you killed. And we should hear that today. Every person is guilty. Every person is guilty. So the crowd responds to Peter's sermon with this. What shall we do? The Bible says they were cut to the heart and they respond. What shall we do? This is where Peter gives us the last truth of his sermon. He tells us that there is hope. There is hope for anyone in the gospel. There is hope for anyone in the gospel. I love that truth. Um, I was encouraged by that reality even this week through a number of different conversations um, people who have come to faith in Christ out of addiction or out of all kinds of struggles would tell you that this gospel is for anyone. Anyone, right? Yes. This is why we go to all places and to all peoples is to extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the world that desperately needs Him. But here's the great reality. If we don't realize that we are among them, as needy, needy people who need the grace of Christ, we'll never go to them. Right? And so Peter is driving home the message first that everyone is guilty and desperately in need of grace. And when their hearts are broken because of their need, they say, what can we do? And he says one word, repent. And wrapped up in that word are a lot of things, but he made it very short and concise. Repent, And what that means is put your trust in Christ. Turn from who you were. I want to give you three things it means quickly. Here they are. Repent means to change your mind about your sin. Your sin is not okay. No matter how small you think it is or how big it is, it's not okay. God says it's not okay and it's not okay. Change your mind about your sin. It's not something you can welcome into your life and just keep on rocking. It's going to kill you. Change your mind about your sin. Then change your mind about yourself. You can't save yourself. You're not God. There is a God. It's not you. You cannot save yourself. Lay down your self-reliance and come dependent on Jesus. That's what it means to repent. Change your mind about your sin, about yourself, and then about the Savior. There is one who came to rescue you. And it's this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made Lord and Christ. And there's hope for anyone in this gospel. That's the message from Peter is to repent. This is how faith responds to the good news of Christ is that we repent. And when you repent, you are forgiven. When you repent, you receive the promised Holy Spirit. If there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness. If there's no repentance, there's no Holy Spirit. 
Jesus said it this way in Luke 13, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Peter's answer to their question, what should we do? Is one word, repent. Then he says, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is where he gives a name to the Lord that Joel talked about. Joel said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it's in this place that Peter says, you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's not telling us that we have to be baptized to be saved. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, read the rest of the New Testament. That's not the the model of the New Testament church. They don't require baptism. When when, uh, many people come to faith in Christ, they're, they're not baptized... As a part of that, they're baptized after as a reflection of what's an inward change as an outward expression. And that's what baptism is. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What Peter's saying is now you're to be identified with Christ and with his church. I want to welcome you to become one of us. You declare the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection and his lordship over your life. This is Peter's sermon. I want to sum it up in a way that even our kids in the room can understand. So, uh, kiddos, if you're still with us, uh, I want to get your attention, okay? Here is the good news of the gospel. So if you can pay attention, I want you to listen. Um, A few weeks ago, or a couple of weeks ago, actually, I was in the uh, thrift store next door trying to buy some things from our neighbors there. um, They're always so encouraging and... uh, I was checking out in the little checkout line there, and the lady looked at my, my little wristband here, and she said, I like that. What is that? And I said, well, um, it's, a, it's just a little reminder to me of the gospel. And I said, can I share it with you? And she said, yeah. I said, well, here's what it means. Um, that little heart right there means that God loves you even though you don't deserve it. There's no reason you should be loved but God's grace. You and I are. Not deserving of God's love, but He loves us. In fact, um, this next little symbol here means that we are separated from God. Our sin separates us from God. And um, because of that, we can't make our own way back to God. But the good news is that this cross reminds us that Jesus came to us to bring us to God. He died in your place. He died for your sin. And if you put your hope in Him... And Him alone, you'll be saved. And that's the message of Peter's sermon. After he preaches it, they say, what must we do? And that's this last one. What must we do? Well, repent. Put your faith in Christ. Be identified with Jesus and with His people. Join in His kingdom and His mission in the world. That's that's what it means to have hope in Him. So maybe you're wondering this morning, what should I do? What should I do? And here's... Three quick action steps for you. Here they are. Cling to grace. Cling to grace. We, we are people of grace. I killed Jesus in my rejection of him, but God raised him and exalted him. And through repentance and faith, I can be forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit. I cling to grace. Secondly, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. And you say, well, I'm not a preacher. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to those people you meet as you do your job or as you're in the 
thrift store, Walmart, whoever. Share the gospel, the good news of Christ to yourself and to others. Believe it and then share it. I love the sequencing in Acts chapter 2. We have the Holy Spirit empowering their worship first and their witness second. That's what was going on in the upper room. They're worshiping. They're believing the gospel and worshiping Christ. And as the crowd gathers, Peter then begins to witness and preach and proclaim that truth. The Holy Spirit will give you boldness. He'll give you the words to share. Preach the gospel. And lastly, commit your life to the church. And I don't mean this building with a steeple. Remember, the church isn't a building with a steeple. The church is Jesus' people. Commit your life to Jesus' people. To the movement of King Jesus through His people. Give your life to it. The church is a movement of ordinary people with extraordinary power multiplying Jesus' people in all the world. This is the hope of salvation for guilty men and it's in this Jesus. Amen?